Good morning. It's good to be with you. If you have a Bible, go to Philippians chapter 3. Brother Reggie, it's an honor to lead New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and be here this morning with you. I have to say I've already started off better than I did in Mississippi. In Mississippi, I got up to speak. A video started. I started talking. I tried to back up and I tripped over the stage platform and knocked over everything. So, you know, it's, I said then, you can only go up from there. So anyway, I am so grateful to be with you here this morning and uh, just cherish the opportunity and the honor that you've given me to be here in this moment. It's very humbling to me that you would uh, invite me and let me speak to you for just a few moments. It's even more humbling to have the responsibility that you've given to me and to my team. We have a wonderful, wonderful, fantastic team that exists to serve you. And I want to just take a quick word, a quick moment, just to say thank you for your constant support, not just through the CP. That's fantastic and essential, but also your support just in, by words of encouragement to me, to my family, to my staff, and to my team. We are always and constantly deeply encouraged by you. So thank you for being who you are, encouraging us in the way that you do. Uh, we are grateful to serve you and to give back uh, by training up that next generation of men and women to go into the darkness and go help in your churches do the ministries that you're doing. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm excited about the theme this morning from Philippians chapter three, and um, I think Brother Fred is going to address us from the the Philippians chapter three as well. But I want to just take a, a moment, if I may, twenty minutes in each time slot. And uh, so take maybe one message, one passage, and one message, break it in half and do part one right out of the gate here with you now, and then come back later this afternoon and do part two. So Philippians chapter three, pick up with me in verse number one. Scholars will note that as you're reading the book of Philippians, that Paul seems to be at the end of chapter two, wrapping it up. He's doing some of the typical things that he does in his other epistles where he starts to give final greetings and final thoughts and final salutations. And then all of a sudden in chapter three, it's as though he has a second thought. You ever pray like that? You ever pray publicly and you're praying and you go to wrap up your prayer and Lord, we thank you so much. And you remember to pray for something else. That is as though what Paul is doing here. He has this second thought, and I'm so very, very glad that he did. Really, in, in large part, the, the meat of the book comes in this second wind, this second thought that Paul has here. But he starts by warning these believers against the Judaizers, the ones that thought that, yes, Christ is good, but you need to keep the law as well. And specifically, you need to keep circumcision, and Paul takes shot at that and in the process helps us to see what it means to be in Christ, what it means to love Christ and value Christ and to be in pursuit of Christ. Philippians chapter three, verse one. Finally, then my brothers rejoice in the Lord for me to write these things to you is not tedious, but for you, it is safe. And then beware of dogs. What? Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. What in the world is he talking about? He is mocking those Judaizers that said that, yes, grace in Jesus Christ is wonderful, but you must continue to observe the Old Testament teachings specifically about circumcision, mutilation. He calls it a mutilation. Verse 3, he gets down to the beef of the matter. 
These people have placed their faith and their confidence in their own righteousness. And now the rest of this passage is attacking that and simultaneously showing us what it means to be in Christ. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and listen to this, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks that he could have confidence in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is by the law, blameless. In other words, Paul says, if you want it in human terms, I'm a big deal. Verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father God, this morning in the business, this morning in the work that Louisiana Baptist came here to do, speak to our hearts. Recalibrate our minds and help us, Lord Jesus, to see what you want us to see, to do what you put us here to do. Most importantly, Lord, to love what is the most important thing of all to love. So, Father, use this time now to speak and to address your people, to make your servants strong. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does it mean to pursue Christ and his kingdom? I stand here looking at a room full of God's servants, faithful every single week to be about the work of ministry. You preach, you pray, you plan, you organize, you structure, you lead, you do all these different things. We become so familiar with the things of God that we can do it on autopilot. We get so frustrated sometimes with the people that our hearts can grow bitter or cold. And the rhythms and the familiarity can rob us of the actual joy of walking with Christ. There's not a person in this room that would ever intend for this to happen. And at various points in our lives, we may even to some degree guard against it happening, but... What will inevitably happen to every single one of us, maybe what has happened to some of us even in this room as I speak to you, is that we've become professional Christians. We're really good at doing church, leading God's people, speaking in the moments, standing in the moments, 
praying, leading, and you name the whole host of other things. And we're so close to it that we've lost. That initial passion and fervency that was once ours when we came to faith in Jesus Christ. And we're pursuing a lot of things, but we're not pursuing Christ and His kingdom. We would never mean for it to happen, but somewhere along the way, these lights and these platforms and these little microphones and these moments that we stand in become important to us. We seek them out. We jockey for position. We hone our skills and we do the things that we do, but somehow, someway, we've just lost sight of that which was most important, and we think that we've become something. When elected to this, entrusted with that, given the title of this, I remember a mentor of mine said to me once years ago, the fastest way to see a man or woman's true character is to give them a title and watch who they become. What does it mean to pursue Christ? I think this is a question That's not a Sunday school question. In other words, it's not a question that we should just merely be concerned to answer for those that are new to Christianity or somewhat tangentially involved in the life of the church in a Sunday school class. I think that this is a question that you and I have to circle back on again and again and again as the leaders, as the most developed and the most cultivated the people that are, well, the most serious about our faith in our churches because of all those factors that I just said, we can lose sight of it. So what does it mean to pursue? I think the Apostle Paul is answering that question in Philippians chapter 3. Here's here's Paul. Man, if there were a person in the eyes of the world, even by religious standards, that could brag, that could boast, that could peacock around, it was the Apostle Paul. You think you... Have something to have confidence in the flesh, he says. I'm more. And he lists out his spiritual resume. And then he concludes that as great and as wonderful as those achievements were, they are like fecal matter. That's what he says, actually. They're like rubbish. King James translates that as dumb. And it gets it right. All of my accomplishments are nothing. So let me just make two quick points here in the first part of our Bible study. I'm going to pick up the rest of this in my next session in the afternoon. We'll do part two of this. Let me make two points now, two points then. What does it mean to pursue Christ and His kingdom? Two things for us right now. Number one, it means this. Verse number three through verse number eight, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that when you're pursuing Christ, you put no trust in yourself or in your accomplishments. Again, verse 4, I have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has a reason to be confident in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day and of the stock of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is from the law, I was blameless. But verse number 3, He prefaced all of that by saying that we are to have no confidence in the flesh. I like to ask 
especially our students, these young aspiring preachers and leaders, I like to ask them this question, why did God pick you? Why did God pick you? I mean, there were lots of other people he could have picked. Let me ask you this question. Why did he pick you? There's lots and lots of other people he could have picked other than me or you. And when we ask that question, especially when they're young, they often are inclined to think, well, the reason he picked me is because I'm good at this and I'm good at that and I'm good at this thing and that thing and I've got some experience here. And what if the answer is none of those reasons? What if it's not my strengths of why God picked me, but what if it is instead my actual weaknesses, my soft spots? It's the very things about me that aren't ideal. And what if God picked me because of those things? such that when He does do a work in and through our lives, only He can receive the glory and the honor and the praise for. This is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You consider your calling, brothers, not many wise according to the flesh, not many noble, not many mighty. There aren't many people that are just powerful or influential or well-born or just super significant. I'm not saying that God never does it, and neither does Paul there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But he makes it very clear that there's not many of them. But rather, God has chosen the foolish things of this world. He's chosen the despised things of the world. He's chosen the base things of this world. He's chosen the things that are not. Those are the things that God has chosen. And he's done it to confound the wise. He's done it to humble the proud. And he's done it to bring glory and honor to his own name. Maybe the reason that God picked you is because you're weak. Maybe the reason God picked me is because I am not much. Either way, where's my confidence? You see, when you're pursuing Christ in His kingdom, you, you operate out of a disposition that you know good and well that no matter what you've accomplished, no matter what's happened through your life, it is never enough, it is never sufficient, and it is not the reason that you're standing there. It is grace, it is mercy, it is power, it is Christ and it is Christ alone. And I put no confidence in my flesh. I put only confidence in Jesus Christ. Paul says, man, I have a great resume. And yet it is nothing. Verse 7, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss, that I will count the loss of all things for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Do you remember the young rich ruler? He was a person that put his confidence in his flesh, Right? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark chapter 10. Jesus humors him. He knows his heart. There's multiple things that are said there in that passage that indicate that Jesus has already rung this guy up top to bottom and knows everything about him that he needs to know. So he humors the question. Oh, okay. You want to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. You know, honor your father and your mother. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Do those things. And the young rich ruler puffs his chest up. Well, Lord... All these things I have done from my youth. And what he's looking for from Jesus here evidently is a pat on the back. Good for you. You're great. You're cool. Come on. And Jesus puts his finger on the real problem for this young man. The Bible says Jesus looked at him and loved him and says, one thing you lack, go sell all your riches, give to the poor, and come and follow me, and then you'll have riches in heaven. The young rich ruler walked away miserably. It's as though what Jesus says to him in response is, get rid of your God. You want to follow me? Get rid of these other things, these idols that we cleave to, these things that are so doggone important to us that we achieve and the status we hold 
And yet, to be in pursuit of Christ means I don't put my confidence in any of these things. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse number 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What is he talking about here? Is he talking about despondent people? Is he talking about people with depression issues? No. He's talking about people that are described like Paul right here. That place no confidence in their flesh their achievements, their own righteousness, or none of those things. The poor in spirit, these are people that recognize, listen to me, their own spiritual destitution. They recognize that before God, they are bankrupt. They recognize that when they come before God, even after redemption, that they come with empty hands and nothing to offer. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah said it this way about us. Isaiah 64, verse 6. We are all like an unclean thing and our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade away as a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. What does it mean to be in pursuit of Christ? It means that, first of all, you're putting no confidence in yourself or your own accomplishments. Second thing I think it means to us, to be in pursuit of Christ means you seek Christ as your greatest reward of all. Verse number 7, What things were gained to me, I count them as loss for Christ. Yet indeed also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have counted the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, you know what? Whatever achievement, whatever accomplishment, whatever status, whatever position, whatever power, whatever luxuries, whatever this world could charm me with is like rubbish in comparison to just owning this one simple thing, and that is Jesus Christ. Listen, we preach this. We teach this. We even come up with ministries designed to sort of brand this. But the idols of our own names... And the idols of our own lives choke out this pursuit. And we will love the shiny things of this world. To be in pursuit of Christ means that you've come now to realize that Christ and Christ alone is the thing worth having. Christ and Christ alone is the thing that can satisfy our hearts. And to own Christ and have no spotlights to own Christ and have no platforms, to own Christ and to be unknown and unseen is still to have everything that my heart and my mind could ever actually want. You remember the parable? The parable of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13, verse number 44, 46. He gives two of them actually in a very short little paragraph of Scripture. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which the man found and hid, and for joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. In other words, when you discover who Jesus Christ is and what He is, you find His worth to surpass everything else this world could ever give you. And as a result of that, you're willing to give away everything that this world could ever give you. Just to have Him. He goes on, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he found one pearl of great price, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. Hey, can I just ask you a question as our time comes to a close? I'll pick it back up this afternoon. 
Have you forgotten that first love? Are there other things now that you seek that will satisfy you? And here's the deal about them. They will, in fact, satisfy you for a minute. But like a new car, they're going to get dented, banged, scraped, scratched, and it will no longer satisfy your heart. And here's the challenge about seeking satisfaction in the world and not Christ. It'll satisfy you for a moment, but when the thirst and the hunger comes back, it'll be stronger and greater. Brothers, sisters, with me, let's pursue Christ. The one who can actually satisfy us. Lord Jesus, bless us. Help us to be faithful to you. Help my friends and my brothers and sisters here as they do work this week to not just honor you with decisions made, conversations that are had, but Lord, in the work, would you remind our hearts and our minds of where our greatest satisfaction is in Christ. And may we pursue that together with great fervency. We love you and we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.